Good morning. All right, our scripture reading for this morning, it's Romans 8, verses 16 to 24. Romans 8, 16 to 24. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 944. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. So Romans 8, verses 16 to 24. This is the word of the Lord. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope, now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? Let me have a seat. Good morning. <clears throat> it's really encouraging to be reminded of the gospel, um, the hope that we have. Um, I was really encouraged singing those songs this morning. I needed to be reminded of those things, so... Good to be together, worship our great God and Savior together. Um, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5, we're going to be looking at the first 10 verses. Um, you can find that on page 966 if you're using the Pew Bible. While you're turning there, um, just think of a few things here with me. So in, in 1997, um, a journalist named David... Van Biema, I think that might be how you say his name, wrote an article for Time magazine around Easter time entitled, Does Heaven Exist? So he wrote this. He said, it used to be that the hereafter was virtually palpable, but American religion now seems almost allergic to imagining it. Is paradise lost? And so he goes on in the article to answer his own question with a yes. He then says, the current generic heaven still delivers when people need it most at the death of a loved one. Why bother with it any other time? Yes. So that's a pretty good question. Do you bother with it at any other time? So most uh, financial planners will tell you that diversifying your portfolio is important to help you weather the ebbs and flows of the market. In other words, they encourage you not to put all your proverbial eggs in one basket, right? That's good financial advice, but it's really dangerous to handle your soul's hopes that way, okay? So imagine that uh, you leave here today, later, this afternoon, hopefully not because the Eagles are losing. Um, you have some strange pain 
in your head. And, you know, you think it'll pass maybe in the next few days, but after a week goes by, you decide better go see a doctor. You go in, explain the symptoms. He orders a scan. They find a tumor growing, inoperable. Really quickly, you would find out where your hope is. So you might find yourself saying things like, Lord, how could you allow this or do this to me? I'm only so many years old. I have a family. What about my kids? I haven't even gotten to do thus and such yet. If our hopes are diversified and our hope in God is just one among many, you see how watered down it will be, how weak it will be, and weak Faith and hope needs strengthening in order to handle a crisis like that or any kind of suffering that we face in this life. So you remember the uh, first New City Catechism question? What is our only hope? Did you know what it says next? It doesn't just say, what is our only hope in death? It says, what is our only hope in life? and in death. Do you remember the answer? Anybody want to say it with me? That we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and in death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So is this your only hope in life? Or does the hope of the resurrection, and I think I'm guilty of this, at times, this, this passage is going to help us, right? We need to grow and learn. And How often does the resurrection hope, the hope of eternal life, actually only function in this life as a last-ditch hope? Like, when everything else fails, then we kind of bank on that. But that's not how we ought to live. It's not how we ought to operate. Listen to 1 Peter 1.13. I think this is radical. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, so there's some mental labor that needs to take place if you're going to actually live like this, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not optional. This is really important. God wants us to set our hope fully, all the eggs in that basket, on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So how do you do that? What does that look like? We need examples of what that looks like, sounds like, and Paul's example in 2 Corinthians 5 is what it looks like, what it sounds like. So let's read that together here, and then we'll dive in for our study this morning. So if you're using the Pew Bible, like I said, page 966. And really... 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 5, 10 kind of all hang together, or at least um, 4, 16 to 5, 10 really clearly hang together. So let's actually back up a few verses and start in 4, 16, and then read down through chapter 5, verse 10, and, um, and then we'll unpack it. So follow along as I read 2 Corinthians 4, 16. 
So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what He has done in the body, whether good or evil." All right, so I want you to actually, I usually just kind of mention it's there, but I want you to actually open up your bulletin and look at the outline that's in there because it's really a summary, and you can kind of read through it and see a summary of this passage. So it's helpful maybe to just get the big picture logically of where we're headed so that you can, you know, know where the trees fit as we um, walk through them. So here's the forest view. We groan, longing, and burdened. So how do we not lose heart when we're groaning and we're burdened? We do not lose heart. We're of good courage because we know something, because we know we have an eternal house. How do we know this? We know it because we have the Spirit, and we know it because we walk by faith and not by sight. So... We fix our eyes on what's unseen and internal. We walk by faith, living to please the Lord. So that's really the kind of where we're headed. We groan. We live under the sun, broken world, broken bodies, longing, burdened, easy to lose heart. How do we not lose heart? Well, by knowing something, knowing that we have an eternal house and also because we have the Spirit, because we walk by faith and not by sight, and as a result of that, if we're living by faith, not by faith, not by sight, but by faith, we will be living to please the Lord. Okay? So take them one at a time. <clears throat> First point, we groan, longing, and burden. So most of us in this room know this. Um, if you live long enough under the sun, in this fallen, broken world, you're going to suffer. Um, we're going to suffer in these bodies. We're going to get sick and diseased. We're going to degenerate. We're going to lose capacity. The horizon's narrow, and ultimately, we're going to die. Follow Jesus, our crucified Savior. And on that road, it's 
denying yourself, taking up, taking up your cross and following him, right? You're going to suffer. We're going to suffer. So as we follow Jesus, willingly laying down our lives for the good of other people, we will at times have less sleep, less money, because we're going to be giving it away to meet needs, less freedom, because we're going to be concerned with other people's issues and problems and helping them, less control, because again, we're engaged in ministry to people, more stress, <laughs> more burdens, more grief, more risk, more loss. So burdened, right? We are mere jars of clay, like it says back in 4.7, easily cracked, easily broken. Our outer nature is wasting away. Tyler covered that well last week, 4.16. Look at how Paul describes this clay pot life um, in verses 2 to 4. For in this tent, what's he referring to there? Our bodies. Temporary dwelling. Right? Earthly temporary dwelling. Dwelling. In this tent, we groan. It parallels that wasting away in, in 4.16. We groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked, which probably refers to disembodied existence. So when we die, body goes in the ground, our spirit goes to be with God in heaven until the day when Jesus returns, and then we receive our resurrection body and we are further clothed. Resurrection body, right? Okay, so we don't want to be found naked. That's not the ideal state. We don't want to just float around in the ether forever, right? Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Did you hear that same language in Romans 8 when Tyler read that? So the whole creation is groaning. This world is cursed. It's under the curse. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. Well, we are already, already adopted, but the fullness awaits. <clears throat> the redemption, the full freedom of fully made new bodies with no more burdens and no more brokenness and no more wasting away. For in this hope we were saved. So if life is characterized by groaning and longing and being burdened, how do you not lose heart? We've all lost heart. We all have to battle losing heart, getting discouraged and depressed and down. Suffering tends to knock the wind out of your sails, or it's kind of like ugh, getting the wind knocked out of you, right? So it can kill your hope. It can kill your motivation. You can feel helpless and overwhelmed. It can feel like this inescapable kind of suffocating weight when we're suffering. So how does, how, do, how do heavy, especially prolonged earthly sufferings, how in the world can they seem light and momentary, like Paul said in 4.17? How do we not lose heart in suffering? Well, point number two, how do we not lose heart? There's several gracious truths um, that, that answer that question in the context of 4.7 to 5.10. In 4.7 to 12, we saw that God has purposes for our suffering. Okay, so they show that the surpassing power to sustain us and to deliver us is not from us, but it's from God. 
Okay, so we get knocked around. How in the world do we carry on? When we carry on and are sustained, it shows that God's power is at work. His resurrection power is at work to, to keep us going. So that's one of the reasons. It's the power of God sustaining us through suffering, delivering us from suffering. Either way, God's glorified, and it shows that he's got the power. We are needy and helpless. He is powerful and able and willing. So there's a there's good purpose in this. He is showing his power, his sustaining, delivering power that helps us not lose heart in the midst of suffering. There's a purpose. We also know that the comfort that we experience in our affliction is not just for us. It's also for others. So death, suffering, is at work in us, but life in others. So motherhood's a good example of this, right? Mothers die daily so that their kids can live and thrive and flourish. And so that's the case spiritually as well. There are needy people around us that God places in our lives, and we die daily so that others might live. We sacrifice. We lay down our lives, our comfort, our freedom, our whatever, in order to bless and care and serve and meet needs. So because of that, if we know and embrace this divine intention, we won't lose heart in suffering because we know that God is actually using it to, to bless other people. And then, verse 16, as Tyler unpacked last week, we, we don't lose heart. Even though our outward nature is wasting away, we actually can be renewed day by day because we know that suffering is, again, productive. It's meaningful. It's purposeful. God's using it. It's not pointless. It's not purposeless. It's producing good things in us, like perseverance and character and hope and empathy and compassion. And then through us, it will produce things in the lives of others as we share the comfort we've received with others, as we sacrificially love them, as we've been loved by Jesus. So we groan in this bodily tent, this temporary dwelling, yes. We groan, burdened, yes. But we do not lose heart. Why? Because we know something. That's the way Paul reasons here. And that's point number three, because we know we have an eternal house. So the power to not lose heart when we suffer and degenerate and waste away is to know something. 5-1, for we know. So we do not lose heart. We are looking to the things that are unseen and eternal because we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So this is actually the reason why we cannot lose heart. We have something. When we lose our life on this earth, when we die and our earthly tent is destroyed, we have a permanent dwelling eternal in the heavens. So as we groan in this earthly tent, this is actually what we ought to be longing for. So Paul, in verse 2, he doesn't say, we groan, longing for earthly comfort and to escape from suffering. He doesn't say that. He's not merely longing for deliverance from immediate sufferings, but more ultimately, he's longing to actually put on his heavenly dwelling, his, our final state, our true home, true wholeness and redemption and renewal. Don't you want to be made new completely? 
Like, can you imagine the day when you no longer have any aches and pains, but also no inclination to sin, no internal conflict, no guilt, no shame, no like addictive impulse to some destructive path. Talk about the redemption, the full redemption of the children of God. Isn't that something to look to and long for? That's ours. That's coming. The redemption of our bodies, like it says in Romans 8. So same thing in verse 4. We groan being burdened, but watch where Paul goes. He doesn't say we groan being burdened and asking God to remove the burden or spare us the burden in this life. He doesn't say that. He says he's burdened, but it's not that, we, that he would be unclothed, but that he would be further clothed. That's, look at it there in verse 4. We groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed. I don't want to just be free of this body. See, that was what the Stoics thought. They thought, oh, they're just kind of, we're kind of imprisoned in these bodies, and you know, real freedom will come when we can just get rid of the body. Body bad, spirit good. You see? Paul's like, no. No, God likes matter. He made us embodied beings. So we look forward to the day when everything is made new. We're looking forward to the redemption of our bodies, resurrection bodies, total renewal. Okay? So he says he's burdened, not that he would be unclothed, but that he would be further clothed, putting on immortality. Okay? So, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 2, in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we're still in this tent we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So it's not that Paul despises the disembodied state between death and resurrection. No. He makes it abundantly clear elsewhere, like in Philippians 1. He says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To depart and be with Christ is very much better, right? And even later on in this passage, look at verse 8. He says, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. But that being said, that disembodied existence with the Lord at death is not the final hoped-for, longed-for existence. We don't have some dualistic perspective of salvation in heaven. The body's not a prison, okay? Our ultimate hope is our ruined-by-the-fall bodies to be resurrected, glorified, made new, our souls to therefore be further clothed with resurrection, glory, and immortality. So just to be clear, I, sometimes I hear people say, I think we, we just talk, talk about this, sometimes maybe it's just we're not thinking. Um, when so-and-so, our beloved friend or brother or sister or whatever dies, they don't get an immediate new body. Body goes in the ground, it's like planting a seed. And someday when Jesus comes back, the garden is going to you know, burst forth, right, with fruit. But our spirit goes to be with God in heaven. And we wait until Jesus returns to make everything new and the dead will be raised imperishable. And that's when we get our resurrection body. So 
That's an objective promise, right? It's out there, the hope of the resurrection. But it's oftentimes, doesn't it seem that this is not very real to us? It doesn't factor into our daily lives. I don't know if you struggle with that, but I mean, how often do we know it in here? How do we know it internally, subjectively, kind of? Well, number four, because we have the Spirit. The Spirit helps us know it, okay? Because He's actually the down payment of what's to come. Verse five, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So this is God's plan. This is our great hope. He's going to make all things new. He's given us his spirit as a down payment. The first fruits in Romans 8, similar idea. A guarantee of what's to come. Okay, it's like the earnest money on a house. So by the power of the gospel, the spirit of God came in. When we're converted, the spirit comes in and takes our dead stony hearts and makes things new. We're made alive together with Christ. We're new creatures. We're new creations in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. So inwardly, we're being renewed because we're new people. But outwardly, we're wasting away. So inwardly, we're heading in the right direction. Outwardly, we're heading in the wrong direction. And don't, like, just can't wait until total newness comes together, body and soul. That's going to be a great day. So, we know this by the Spirit. That's what the Spirit of God wants to make real to us. So his internal work to make us new, the presence of the Spirit of God within us, makes us know that God's going to finish that work that he began. He is the down payment proof that he will one day finish the job. So, verse 6, we are always of good courage. We do not lose heart. That's the opposite of losing heart, right? Of being of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. Hey, in other words, we expect to groan and be burdened. We know we're clay pots. We know we're wasting away. There's no escaping it. As long as we're in this earthly tent, we're away from the Lord, so we don't ultimately lose heart over our sufferings. We have this objective promise of all things made new, hope of the resurrection. We have the internal presence of the Spirit helping us really get it, believe it, know it. He's the down payment. So the way that we work this out in daily life is walking by faith and not by sight. Okay? This perspective, this not losing heart, being of good courage, it's not automatic. I mean, I don't think I have to convince any of you of that. Like, we struggle with this, right? So how do we grow in actually living this way where we don't lose heart, but we are always of good courage? We need to learn to walk by faith and not by sight. So that's point number five, because we walk by faith. Look at verse seven. For we walk by faith, not by sight, looking to what is unseen and eternal rather than to what is visible and transient. Okay, so listen, we've actually got to look to what is unseen. That's like your job description every day. Okay, Christian, look to what is unseen. We've got to learn to walk by faith. We need to intentionally, repeatedly, regularly look to what is true. Our lives are actually hidden 
with Christ in God. One day when Jesus returns, it will be cosmically exposed and made public. But for now, it's hidden. These, these great realities are hidden, and we wait for them. But we need to be really acquainted with them. We need to look to what is unseen. We need to walk by faith and not by sight. The things that are seen are transient. They cannot sustain us. Diversifying our hopes into you know, a bunch of different baskets, those things are not going to help us. Only our hope in God can help us living by faith in what's unseen and eternal. So verse 8, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So if, if this is your perspective, do you see how free you are? <laughs> like, don't you want this perspective that, yes, we are of good courage? We'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. I mean, the greatest threat for most of us, most of us is just decay and death. Looks like so much loss. But what if that only takes you home where you'd rather be? If that's really true, do you see how you are totally free? Do you see how that actually frees you to lay your life down? Because you don't have to save it anymore because it's, you've already got it. So I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but if you are afraid of death, if you fear death, that fear of death will actually trickle back into the present and hinder your ability to love, to lay down your life for others because you have to save your life because you're hoping only for the things that are in this life because death is so much loss. But what if dying was gain? What if in losing your life, you know you're going to find it? What if you have eternal life and nothing can take that from you, no one can take it from you, nothing can separate you from the love of God, not even death? Then that freedom actually trickles back into the present and it frees you to lay down your life. So you don't have to be, you know, protecting yourself financially. You can... Be generous because the Lord's going to take care of you and you can't take it with you. Time, energy, everything. We can take risks rather than having to hedge our bets and protect ourselves. So we need to fix our eyes on what is unseen and eternal so that we can always be of good courage and walk by faith and not by sight. So is that actually what enables you to be of good courage? Just If you were to stop and think back on the last month, three months, year, and think of times when you did not lose heart or maybe times where you were encouraged, you were of good courage, why were you of good courage? Was it because of circumstantial blessings? Things were going well, so you were like doing well. Well, that's, that's great, but what happens when circumstances are going the other direction? What actually keeps us from losing heart through all the ebbs and flows and the suffering and the breakdown and the eventual, like, hey, we're just going to flat out. That day is coming where the other shoe's going to drop, folks. 
every single one of us. You know, many of us have had instances where we had the cancer scare or the, you know, the almost, I had my seatbelt on. If I hadn't, you know, like, but someday (laughs) it's coming. The other shoe's going to drop. So we can't diversify our hopes. We need to set our hope fully on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus. Let's not diversify our hopes. I think, and I'm guilty here, and I, oh, Lord, change me. I think what we really often want is earthly hope. We want to have our cake and eat it too. So yes, we hope, but what we really, on a functional level, hope for is all kinds of good earthly things. And so we oftentimes don't fully set our hope or, or set our hope fully on the grace to be brought to us of the revelation until we have to, until it's the only option left. Let's not live that, that way, folks. That's not living by faith. That's living by sight until we have to live by faith. <laughs> but listen, do you know why we do that? Because we think the greater reward would be to diversify our spiritual portfolio. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. Do you know where the real reward's at? Listen to Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder. Putting all your eggs in God's basket is not like, oh, I'm going to really miss out, you know, fear of missing out. No. (laughs) That's where it's at. Those are the solidest joys, if that's a word, solidest. That's where it's at. So when we're walking by faith, looking to what is unseen and eternal, we have this eternal perspective. It clarifies our desires and our goals in this life. To die as gain goes hand in hand with to live as Christ. So think about it this way. Remember that trickle-back effect, Right? If you're afraid of death, then you're going to hedge your bets and you're going to diversify. But if you are, we've already got our eternal life locked up. We don't have to be afraid of death anymore. All of our eggs are in the Jesus basket. And that freedom trickles back. And we're just living to please the Lord. So what's our only hope in life and in death? Interestingly, that we are not our own, but we belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So Garland, um, commentator, says, Paul can abandon himself entirely to his mission because he knows that God will not abandon him in death. That's good, because we're talking about cruciform ministry here. Cruciform living taking up our cross and following Jesus and cruciform ministry, the call to to live that way for the good of others. The freedom to live a cruciform life filled with cruciform ministry is the eternal life-securing grace of Jesus that was bought by our Savior who died and rose again and gave us his spirit as the down payment that so will we. We will rise again. 
So when our eyes are on what is unseen and eternal, when we walk by faith, it changes how we live. We live to please the Lord. Last point, number six. So by faith, we live to please the Lord. Look at verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, in the body or when we die, we make it our aim to please him. So listen, brothers and sisters, we're the church of Jesus Christ, right? So let's all commit here that our aim is not for the healthiest, wealthiest, longest retirement possible. If you want to be retired, great. Live for the Lord. If you want to work with your boots on and die, you know, whatever, with your hand to the plow, great. Do it for the Lord, right? So our aim is to please him, not to try to fulfill as many earthly hopes as possible, but to set our hope fully on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus so we're set free to live for the Lord and for others in this life. So our aim is not to avoid or escape suffering. Our aim is to please the Lord who is our hope, who gives us hope. We'll never regret any of that. We'll never regret laying our lives down for other people. So we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him because we live in light of eternity. We've set our hope fully on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Last reason, verse 10, because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I'm so glad we sung before the throne of God above and appreciated Russell's words um, before that song as well. Are you going to stand before God on your own merits? I hope not. The only way we can stand before the judge of all the earth is if we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who lived the life that we failed to live, who died in our place on the cross so that he could take what we deserve and give us what's his. Give us his righteousness. So we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's going to happen. So justice for us often, oftentimes happened in, you know, behind closed doors in America. Back then, it happened publicly. And the kind of public justice that's going to take place at the return of Jesus is going to be cosmically public. There's no hiding from this judge. It's going to be open for all to see, and he sees everything. So what is the basis of what we receive at the judgment? It sounds here like what we receive is based on what we've done, right? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Does that mean that heaven is something that is earned by our works? No. So we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that faith alone that saves is never alone. It works 
through love. True faith works. So if you have no works, you must have dead faith. And dead faith doesn't save. So what we've done in the body, whether good or evil, is the public evidence of our faith or our unbelief. It's the fruit that demonstrates the reality of our faith. So let's just be very clear here. It is only by faith receiving the forgiveness, the righteousness of Christ as a free gift with the empty hands of faith, right? That's how we're saved. But that faith is the faith in this Jesus who died killing death in the grave. He rose again victorious, and he gives this freedom and this hope to us, and that hope empowers us to lay down our lives and bear much fruit, the fruit of love. And so we don't have to fear Verse 10, because you know what? All of the loving things that you've done that nobody saw, those will also go public then, and you will be rewarded. So this is actually an encouraging thing for Christians. We must all appear before the judgment seat. If that doesn't have to be a threat, that can actually be a wonderful thing. We have laid up treasure in heaven because we believe we're, we're putting all of our eggs in this basket. <clears throat> and we will receive what is due for what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. So this is our great and blessed hope. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear death. <laughs> Jesus died in our place for our sins. He rose victorious. He beat the grave. He holds the key, the keys to death and, and hell. We know, back in 4.14, that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us into his presence. That's our great hope. That's our only hope in life and in death. And let me just close with this quote by Russell Moore. I love it. So again, we need to learn how to set our hope fully on the grace to be brought to us. He says, not many churches have graveyards anymore. And that's a shame. If one really wants to see a theology for the church in action, one might walk into an old church graveyard at night. Walk about and see the headstones weathered and ground down by the elements. Contemplate the fact that beneath your feet are men and women. Really think about this. Beneath your feet are men and women who once had youthful skin and quick steps and hectic calendars but who are now piles of forgotten bones. Think about the fact that scattered teeth in the earth below you once sang hymns of hope. Maybe when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there, or when we all get to heaven. They are silent now, those teeth. But while you are there, Think about what every generation of Christians has held against the threat of sword and guillotine and chemical weaponry. This stillness will one day be interrupted by a shout from the eastern sky, a joyful call with a distinctly northern Galilean accent. And that's when life really gets interesting. So, brothers and sisters, let's set our hope fully Let's learn what that means. Let's help each other learn what that means to set our hope fully on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus. What bodily pains, emotional or physical, like 
You can be hoping in the day when you will be totally healed. That would just be one way to start to think through this. Set our hope fully on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, and let's watch how knowing that hope personally, deeply, will sustain us through suffering. We will not lose heart. We will be of good courage, and we will be empowered to willingly lay our lives down that others might live. Amen? All right, I'm going to pray, and if the men who are going to be serving a communion can come on up, and then we'll prepare to participate in the table together. Oh, we thank you, Father, for this blessed hope. We thank you that it's a living hope and that nothing and no one can kill it. And I pray that you would please help us to set our hope fully on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus. Make that real. Make it more and more real. Teach us how to walk by faith and not by sight. And in so doing, so live in the footsteps of our crucified Savior that just like his seed went into the ground and died and bore much fruit, so the seed of our lives will die and our lives also will bear much fruit that abounds to your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.